At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we've been walking through a series called Mission Endure, a series that is pointing us to 2 Corinthians chapters 4 through 7 as we see a number of different perspectives to help us endure and remain on mission with Christ. Not only have we been saved by his grace, but also he has commissioned us to represent him everywhere we go. How do we maintain on mission with Christ and not just serve him for a season, but run through the tape and serve him for all of our days? We've seen a number of perspectives to that end that the Apostle Paul shares in 2 Corinthians 4 through 7. Today we're going to wrap up this study in part 8 of this study as we look at the bulk of chapter 7. But before we look at that section of Scripture together, I want to just remind us of what this book is. This book that I hold in my hands, a book that many of you hold in your hands, it is the Scripture. And what is the Scripture? It is a very special book because of who has given it to us. This is God's Word delivered to us Unless we think that this is merely a collection of stories, you know, sometimes we talk about Bible stories, unless we think this is just a collection of stories, we need to be reminded that this is actually history. This is not the God that we hope exists. This is the God who has revealed himself in history. And so because of that, we can take seriously his character that is revealed here, his challenges that he gives here, and the way that he has called us to go. You know, many of us, when we're taking even a short journey in these days, we'll use a GPS. We'll take out our phone or we'll program in the location so that we can have directions given for how to get there in the real world, which turns to take, which places to avoid, etc. Friends, in many ways, the scripture is like a GPS unit that God has given to us to guide us and to, to direct us in the places where he wants us to go. And this morning, we're going to see three different thoughts from these verses in chapter 7 that will help us remain and endure on mission for Christ. So knowing that we want to head in that direction, we find the directions to get there here. So let's look at these verses together in part 8 of this series, chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. I want to read these verses for us, and then after I read them, I'll back up and make three observations today. Beginning in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one, have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, has comforted, he was comforted by you. 
as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now, friends, in these verses today, I want us to see three things about enduring on mission with Christ, three perspectives that will help us endure on mission with him. What are they? The first perspective that we need to remember is this. God's hand feels familiar. God's hand feels familiar. Now, we see this in verses 2 through 6, and in order to help really appreciate these verses, we need to think about the overall context of this section of 2 Corinthians. This section is a very relational section. It's a section where Paul is, is often talking about the relationship that he has with the Corinthians and that the Corinthians have with him. Just think about what we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6, verse 13, where Paul says, widen your hearts also. Widen their hearts how? Well, he tells them in chapter 7, in verse 2, they are to make room in their hearts for him. Paul says this because he has made a lot of room in his heart and in his life for the Corinthians. Just listen to the way that Paul describes the, the nature of his ministry among them. He's wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. He, he's writing to them to challenge them in an area of sin in their lives, but he didn't do this just to condemn them, just to make them feel awful, but he did this because they are in his hearts. That they are people that he knows they're going to live together and, and, and die together. He has such affection for them. And so he acted with great, great boldness toward them. With pride, he is reaching out to them. His love for them was prompting him, not just to, to have a warm fuzzy in his soul, but to actually challenge them when he saw them walking in a manner of life that was contrary to Christ's best. And so we're reminded that this is even the occasion for the letter that Paul wrote. All the way back, we saw earlier this year in chapter 2, that Paul wrote the people in Corinth a letter 
to challenge them about some sin that was in their midst. You might remember that Paul was going to take a trip to Corinth, but then he changed from taking a trip to writing a letter because the Corinthians had already rejected him face-to-face once. He had already challenged them once about the sin that was in their midst, and they had, had, had not responded appropriately. So rather than making a second difficult visit, Paul takes a different tact. He decides to write them a stern letter with hopes that they will repent. In, in chapter 2, verse 4, he, he writes them out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause them pain, but to let them know the abundant love that he had for them. Paul loved them, and so it motivated him to challenge them. And so he writes them this letter. Now, in the era in which he wrote this letter, there was no United States Postal Service. So there, there was no FedEx, there was no UPS. He could not just put a stamp on it and then put it in a box and it showed up in the Corinthians mailbox a a few days later. In order for the letter that Paul wrote, this harsh letter, this strong letter that was challenging them, it had to be delivered by someone. And so the Apostle Paul had, had his colleague, Titus, take this letter that he wrote and deliver it to the Corinthians. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul said, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. See, Paul was ministering in Troas on the other side of the ocean from Corinth. He sends a letter with Titus to Corinth and he's eagerly awaiting Titus to return. Now, why would Paul want Titus to come back? He wanted to know what? How did they respond? How did they receive the letter, the admonishment, the challenge? Well, he is ministering in Troas and no Titus, no Titus, no Titus. So eventually, he takes off and goes from Troas to Macedonia. Now, why would he make that move? Macedonia, probably the city of Philippi, is where Paul relocates because the season was changing. You see, it was difficult for the boats to make it from Corinth to Troas in the winter, but it was an easier journey from Troas to Philippi in the wintertime. So Paul relocates so that he has a, a greater likelihood of meeting up with Titus and finding out how it had gone. And so he relocates up to Macedonia. And this is what we see in chapter 5. While Paul is in Macedonia, while he is ministering there, awaiting Titus' return, it says that his body had no rest. He was afflicted at every turn. He was a mess. He was a mess down in Troas, wondering what was going on in Corinth, wondering how his letter had been received. He moves up to Macedonia, still no Titus. He is struggling. He's got fighting around him. There was disputes inside of the church in Philippi he was dealing with, as well as opposition from unbelievers. He had fighting without, but even more so, Paul had fear within. Fear that might have been wondering, were the Corinthians going to abandon their faith? Had they abandoned him? Had they rejected Titus? Had they hurt Titus or even killed him? He's wondering what had happened as his letter had been delivered. Well, in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his pain, something happened. 
God did something. Verse 6 says, but God. And then he describes God, the God who comforts the downcast. God had intervened to care for Paul in the midst of the fighting without and the fears within. God showed up to comfort Paul. Now, how did God do that? I mean, he's God. He could have done anything. He could have put a message in the, in the sky. He could have just had a warm, encouraging sensation fill Paul's belly. But, but how did he do it? Well, the passage tells us. How did God comfort Paul? He comforted him through the coming of Titus. So you can imagine Paul there in Macedonia, there in Philippi, ministering but concerned about what is going on. And suddenly he sees a ship sailing in. Very appropriate that the boat is here today. And he looks up on that boat and he looks and he sees Titus is on the boat. And Titus walks off of that boat and Paul walks over and embraces him and immediately receives comfort. His friend that he didn't know if he was alive or dead was alive. His friend that he had longed to see was suddenly reunited with him. And Paul was encouraged. But notice, when Paul talks about this, he doesn't just say, wow, isn't Titus such a great guy? Titus is so encouraging. Titus is Johnny on the spot. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? But God comforted me through the arrival of Titus. The hand of God felt very familiar. It felt like the handshake of his friend. And friends, we are reminded in the midst of this that God often shows up and comforts us. God comforts the downcast through the arrival and the ministry of presence of other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what God does. And this is important for us to remember because we live in a, in a time and a day and age where there's fighting around us. Amen? There's fighting around us. There are struggles in our lives. There are struggles in our families. There are struggles in our business. There are struggles in our small group even. We, we deal with difficulties. There's fighting around us. But even more so, we live in an era where there are fears within. Am I enough? What's, what's going to happen What's the future hold for me? What, what about the faith journey of this person that I love and I care about? See, we also are people that have fighting without and fears within. But friends, we also are also a people who have a God who comforts the downcast. And how does God want to comfort you and me in the midst of the struggles that we go through? Oftentimes, it is through the arrival of a brother or sister in Christ who sits down and just spends some time with us. So let me ask you the question as we connect this to our lives. Has God ever comforted you through the presence of another? I just want to say, I sure hope the answer is yes. Because that is the normal Christian experience. At least it should be. The normal experience inside the body of Christ is that when we are needing comfort, God will provide it often through the arrival of a brother or sister in the faith. Now, when that person shows up to be with us in our time of need, 
we are tempted to just thank them. Well, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for showing up. And you know what? There's an appropriateness to that. But this passage reminds us that in the midst of the arrival of a friend, we also should turn our eyes to the sky and thank the one who sent our friend to be with us. And so, has God ever comforted you through the presence of another? If so, take time today to thank God for his work in your life, his comfort that he delivered through the body of Christ around you. But a second thing that we need to think about related to this is this. Who does God want to comfort through you? If God shows up to comfort us when we are downcast through the presence of another, who does God want to comfort through you and through your presence? See, this is not just something for just a handful of people inside of the church. It is a ministry that all of us get to participate in. As God moves our hearts to step towards those around us who are struggling, to be with them, to care for them, to pray for them, and just to remind them that God is aware of their situation. See, friends, we need to be reminded that God's hand often feels like the hand of a friend. Let us remember that and receive his comfort in our time of need. But there's a second thing we need to see. Not just this. But the second thing we need to see is this. Response to God involves repentance. Response to God involves repentance. Now, we see this in this longer section of these verses I read earlier from verses 7 through 13. You know, Paul had written this letter to them to challenge them about sin that they were tolerating in their church, to call them away from that sin and to return both to fellowship with God as well as to fellowship with Paul and with the other Christians. There was a a, a harsh letter that Paul writes. And Paul is encouraged not just by Titus' arrival, but by the repentant response of the Corinthians. The Corinthians are, are a model for how to respond when they are rebuked because of their sin. Now, we see this as Paul writes, he says, and not only by, Tim, by Titus' coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. There was a time where they were living in opposition to Paul, but now they are leaning back into Christ and to Paul. And so he is celebrating that change of mind, that change of heart. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now, that's a funny way to say that, isn't it? But we know what he means, don't we? Have you ever gone to confront someone with a challenging issue? And you, you go and, and you, you share and it's, it's hard. And when you leave, they didn't respond the way you hoped that they would respond. And, and you just start regretting it. Like, maybe I should have said it differently. Maybe I should have said it better. If I had, maybe they would have responded differently. And you just kind of back and forth. And Paul says, I, I'm glad I sent it, but I'm not glad I sent it. As I was struggling, waiting for a response. But then he continues, For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief with a nod to Charlie Brown, a good grief. 
All right, thanks. Um, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul saw a response from the Corinthians that was a repentant response. What is repentance? Repentance is a 180. It is a change. It's a change in mind, a change in perspective, but also a change in mind that leads to a change in action. There was a time that the Corinthians were tolerating sin and were rejecting Paul as their leader. After receiving this letter, they turned their hearts back to him, back to Christ, and are changing their behavior. They were repentant in their response. Now, he talks here about how there are two different kinds of grief. There's a kind of grief that is a worldly kind of grief, and there's a, a kind of grief that is a godly kind of grief that leads to repentance. Now, how might we illustrate the difference between the two? I think the easiest way to do that is to look to the pages of Scripture, to two individuals, to Judas and to Peter, and think about their lives in the moments after Jesus' crucifixion. You see, both Judas and Peter wept bitterly after Jesus' death because of their behavior. Judas turned Jesus over for his crucifixion, and he wept bitterly. Peter rejected Christ three times and wept bitterly. There was a movement in emotions on both. But in Judas's case, his sorrow was self-focused. It did not go anywhere else but just a wallowing in his own mistake, and it ultimately led to his death. But in Peter's case, his sorrow led him to a beach where he looks Jesus in the eye, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. They both had sorrow one with sorrow unto death, but the other with sorrow that led to a turn and led to a repentant response into a different life. The Corinthians responded like Peter and not like Judas. And Paul here celebrates it. Now, their re repentant response is, is one that was demonstrated, not just in a decision that they made, but in evidence and fruit that was observable by those around them. Look at how Paul describes it from what he heard from Titus. He says, for, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. B because they had turned, suddenly they had an earnestness to make things right, to change their behavior. They had an eagerness to clear themselves, to, to behave in a different pattern. They, at one time, tolerated their sin, but now there was indignation that they had towards sin, an evidence of a repentant response. They were now living in fear of God. They cared more about what God said about the situation than how they felt or how someone else had influenced them. They were now longing towards the things of God. Their, their very affections were beginning to stir and to change. They had a zeal towards the things of God. They were willing to handle the punishment in church discipline that was going to come to the church because of some of the decisions that they had made. And at every point, they had been proved innocent, meaning 
Their true, repentant, 180 response was evident in the way that they were living their life. This is how the Corinthians responded when they were confronted with sin. And this is a model, an example for us. But let me just ask you the question. What is the goal of such a confrontation? Well, the goal of the confrontation, Paul tells us in verses 12 and 13. He says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Paul said, I I was concerned with bigger things than just a, a, a minor struggle. He says, in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Paul was most concerned about their relationship with each other and their relationship with God. And so he loved them enough to challenge them. And God was at work in their lives so that they responded in repentance, true repentance that led to fruit. So if they are the example for us, let me ask you, how do you react when you are confronted with sin in your life? How do you react? Do you react like the Corinthians reacted and are as described in 2 Corinthians 7? Or do we respond in a little bit of a different way? You know, for some of us, we respond by going on the attack. Somebody comes and and challenges us with sin in our lives, and we are tempted to respond and go, oh, you're going to challenge me? Well, let me tell you this list of grievances I have against you and all the things I've seen you do. See, we're tempted to respond on the attack. Or we're tempted to respond by avoiding the situation. We get called out on sin and we think, well, maybe I'll just go to a different small group. Maybe I'll attend a different service. Maybe I'll go to a different room altogether where they don't know me and they don't know this thing, so I don't have to deal with it. Or maybe we stay in the midst of others, but we keep our eyes down and we don't make eye contact because we want to avoid the conviction that God is bringing upon our hearts. Or maybe we just wallow in self-focus. Maybe we just, we, we hear it and we just internalize it and we feel bad, but we never let it go beyond that point. Friends, these are the way that the world would respond to a challenge to sin. But, but let me just offer an alternative, and it's the alternative of the response of the Corinthians. Are we willing to ask and see if we need to repent? Now, it's possible that somebody is challenging you just because they've got some personal issue and and there's a mistake or, or they're wrong in some way. It's possible. But friends, will we slow ourselves enough to just ask the question, are they right? Is the Lord using them not just to comfort me but to challenge me and to turn the direction of my life that I might live following Christ and not living on my own? Friends, if we will stop and ask this question of repentance, as we begin to respond, it will lead to a few things. The first thing it will lead to is it will move our emotions. It will happen. We'll think differently. We'll feel differently about our sin as we think about moving towards repentance. It will move our emotions, but it will do more than just move our emotions. It will also move us to motion. It will move us to motion, not just changing our perspective, but actually changing the orientation of our lives. True repentance walks away from the sinful patterns in our lives and walks towards God's best. And not only this, but ultimately, it will impact the relationships in our lives. 
It will impact. True repentance will lead to an effect in the community around us. Friends, we understand this to be true. Sin impacts those around us. Think about a husband or wife that that is destroying their marriage through their behavior and their actions. They're walking away from the commitments that they have made. That has an effect on their spouse, does it not? And ultimately, it has an effect on their children and even on the Christian community around them. See, when we begin to repent and walk away, we are, we are understanding that there is something we can do about those bombs that are blowing up. It is turning and walking away from the world's response and towards Christ and seeing him heal and bring change to our lives as we repent and follow him. So, My question today for us is twofold. The first one, is there anything that you need to repent of? You know, around this room, many different experiences, many different things going on. We've not illuminated a number of different sins, but if we're honest, we understand, we know that areas in our life where we are rebelling against the Lord. Is it possible that this morning you're here because the Lord wants to draw your heart back to himself, that you might... Make a decision today to begin the process of repentance and delivering fruits that are consistent with that repentance in your life. And the second thing is, is there someone that God is prompting you to admonish, someone that you're in close community with, someone whose sin you've been ignoring for a while, but maybe today through Paul's example, you might be prompted to take that step, to have that coffee, to share that time, and to admonish them back to the Lord. Friends, a second thing that we need to know to help keep us on mission is to the response to God involves repentance because we will wander from time to time and we need to learn to repent and turn our direction. Third thing that we need to see, and we'll see this quickly, is this. There's an interconnected nature to Christian joy. There's an interconnected nature to Christian joy. Now, we see this in verses 13 through 16. Paul begins in verse 16 talking about rejoicing. He ends in verse 16 talking about rejoicing. But what was it that led Paul to rejoice? It wasn't just things that happened to him. It was things that were happening in the lives of those around him. Look at these these words here in yellow. Those are all of the references to Titus. Paul was celebrating and Paul had joy because of what had happened in Titus's life, because of what Titus had experienced in Corinth. I mean, think about it. The Corinthians had rejected Paul on his last trip. The Corinthians had welcomed Titus. I mean, it's possible that Paul might have been a little jealous, but he didn't stay there. He learned to celebrate with what was happening. He had a joy that could persist because he was celebrating what was happening in Titus's life. And not only that, but he was celebrating what was happening in the Corinthians' lives. All these references in blue are references to what was happening with the Corinthians. Paul had joy and encouragement, not just because of what was happening in his life, but because of what was happening in theirs. There's an interconnected nature, friends, to Christian joy. Some of us sometimes don't experience joy in a sustained way in our lives because our world is just too small. 
See, our lives go up and down, up and down. But when we're in the midst of a dynamic body, like a church family, may we learn to celebrate when God is at work in others' lives. May we learn to be encouraged when others are taking steps of faith. And in this way, we begin to learn what it means to be a part of the body. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he would describe the church this way. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. There is an interconnected nature to the Christian life. Friends, if we are to to sustain and live on mission for Christ, we need to learn to be encouraged by God's work in the lives of others. And we need to learn the importance of that response of repentance. And we need to learn to receive the comfort that God provides through others. May we heed God's word and live in light of it, friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for this passage that has challenged us today. Lord, may we live in light of it. May we be a people who encourage one another, who celebrate what you're doing in each other's lives. And Lord, may we be a people that love each other enough to admonish one another, to repent when need be, and turn back to you. Lord, may you be honored now as we respond in faith in light of the fact that your love changes everything. In Jesus' name we pray.